Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin here with Mike Preisner. Today, we're continuing our coverage of the crisis in Palestine. Like our last episode, this content is normally locked for patrons only. But in the interest of educating as many people as possible about Palestine at this really major turning point, we're making it available to everyone. So if you're a patron, and especially our new patrons, thank you for making this content possible. And if you're not a patron, join us today at patreon.com slash empirefiles for exclusive podcast episodes. In our last episode, we discussed the real breakthrough for Palestine in the U.S. But an important component of this is what's happening within Israeli society amidst this shift. Will the regime back down under pressure, or will they accelerate in Sheikh Jarrah, Gaza, and elsewhere? To get that perspective, we're joined by someone who's in Jerusalem right now, who some of you may know, my friend Miko Paled. If you don't know Miko, he's speaking on this topic from a pretty significant background. His grandfather is one of the founders of Israel, actually one of the signers of Israel's Declaration of Independence. His father is one of Israel's most famous generals, who was a top military leader during the 1967 war. In 1997, Miko's 13-year-old niece was killed in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem. And instead of that leading to hatred against Palestinians, it started his life as a prominent activist for Palestinian human rights. He's the author of General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and he does so much important work we'll talk about a little later. But first, Miko joins us from Jerusalem. Miko, thank you so much for joining the Empire Files podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Abby. Thanks. So, Miko, what is the vibe there right now? Um, let's first talk about the vibe among Israelis in the wake of the ceasefire. Talk about what you've been seeing and experiencing and hearing. Well, the vibe, by and large, among Israelis is... Um, we need to kill them all. We got to put them in jail. We got to arrest them. We got to, you know, they, we have to teach them a lesson. So if it's in Gaza, you know, you know, they say Hamas. Hamas has got to learn their lesson. It's not like there are any people, children, you know, families in Gaza. It's all this thing, which is called a Hamas or the Hamas, and we want heads on a plate, and we want this head, and we want that head. And why didn't the army bring us this head and that head? Every news channel, every news program, every panel of experts, that's all they talk about. Did they kill enough or do they need to kill more? Did they destroy enough buildings or do they need to destroy more? And there are never any stories about children or families or people being killed or innocent civilians. Everybody's a terrorist. That's Gaza. Then the Palestinians inside of so-called Israel, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, they dared to you know, rise up and, and 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 resist, and so they've been they've been just cracking down on them. They arrested I don't know close to two thousand, and then yesterday there was a massive raid all over the country, and they arrested I don't know the five hundred or so. Um, and again, the atmosphere is you know these guys we brought them progress, and this is how they thank us. We gave them citizenship, and this is what they did, you know, and this is how they thank us. What a bunch of ungrateful. Uh, people they are, and we need to take away their citizenship, and we need to take away their electricity, and we need to take away their water. Never mind, they don't want the electricity, they don't get electricity or water anyway, and they don't want the citizenship. 
Um, and uh, then you've got a few people, a handful of people who care and are just going nuts. They're going, how, what is, you know, this is terrible and, and kind of try to speak up and do things. But, you know, it's like people like us, we're like on the fringe. Nobody, nobody really listens. Uh, we, there's no real, there's no way to amplify that voice. So that's the vibe on this side. Good God. Uh, that, that is intense, Mika. That sounds like a very palpable tension that you're navigating there. And I got to say, you know, things are fine on this side. In other words, you know, when the bombing was going on in Gaza, I'm sitting here in Jerusalem. You know, it's quiet. It's lovely. The lights are on. The water, you know, the hot shower and the hot water in the shower. I mean, everything is fine. You Wait, know, you, you weren't story by clothes. You weren't huddled in a bomb shelter. No bomb shelter. No huddling. No nothing. No, we were just hanging out. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack here. Obviously, yeah. um, let's first talk about the media uh what kind of media exists there what's kind of the broad political spectrum of the media outlets and you mentioned i mean there is kind of this unanimity in the response talk more about that because here in the u.s we have kind of two propaganda you know primary propaganda networks the liberal media and then you have the conservative media which is just foaming at the mouth and then, of course, the liberal media masks itself in this like faux progressivism and whatever. But it, ultimately, it's serving the same interests. So what break that aspect down first? Well, there's nothing broad about the media perspective here. It's very narrow. Um, anybody who's ever listened to Fox News. Now, imagine something that's 10 times uh, more stupid, more fascist more racist, um, and um, then you've got what goes on in Israeli media. That's, it's, 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 that, it's that simple. And it's not just one, you know, Israel's got a bunch of TV channels, a bunch of news channels, and not a, a bunch of, you know, people who are sitting there and, you know, broad, broadcasting, spewing their absolute neo-fascist, just hateful, uh, stuff, men and women, and you look at these people and they talk about, you know, bringing back the heads of this guy and bringing back the heads of that guy, and you go, where did, where did this, I mean, what do these people eat for breakfast? I mean, how do they become <laughs> such bloodthirsty people? It's just absolutely horrifying. And of course, one half of the panel are former generals, former yep. Mossad, you know, officers, whatever, whatever. The other side of the panel are either politicians or, you know, and they usually throw in, you know, the most right-wing radical, you know, SOBs that they can find. And that's, and you go from channel to channel to channel, it makes no difference. Uh, you open the news on the radio, same thing. I mean, it's absolutely... Disgusting. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. I can't. I can't even think of any other word to describe it. Do you think that there's more vitriol this time around because several Israelis did die, and there were several installations that were actually hit by rocket fire? Which, compared to the 2014 war, you know, there wasn't as much damage, I guess. And do you think that that just empowered Israeli citizens even more to be even more bloodthirsty? Well, you know, I think it's undeniable that uh, Palestinians have had some serious victories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the airport clo was closed. I mean, I mean, it wasn't actually closed, but I mean, airlines wouldn't land in Tel Aviv for days and days and days. I don't know exactly how many days it was. I was at the airport just a couple of days ago, um, and it's, it's eerie. It's 
like a ghost, not a ghost town, but like a ghost town scent feeling, you know, super heightened security and nobody's inside. I think all these Israeli airlines are flying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the one major airport of a country is closed for days and days, flights are not coming in because they're worried, that's a major blow. Um, Israeli ground forces didn't dare, you know, stick one step into the Gaza Strip because they knew from 2014, you know, they had severe losses. They were like, you know, high-ranking officers that were killed in 2014. And so they knew that, you know, man-to-man, person-to-person, fighter-to-fighter, they don't stand a chance. So they didn't dare take one step into the Gaza Strip, even though they kind of played this game as though they were going to. Um... Uh, rockets fell in places that had never, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here just outside Jerusalem, my family's house, and there were rockets falling around here just before I came here. Uh, that hasn't happened. So, and the, probably in many cases, in many ways, the thing that upset Israelis the most is this massive uprising that has never been seen before, not in this, on the scale of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. You know, in the in they call these mixed cities, which is funny because they're not mixed; they're totally segregated. But there are Palestinians and Israelis living in some in, some, in the same cities. They call them mixed. Um, Palestinians stood up and they, you know, they took off Israeli flags. They put Palestinian flags in the Palestinian cities again in, in 1948 Palestine. These are Palestinian citizens of Israel. I mean, had massive, massive marches and protesters. I mean, carpet. It looks like a carpet of Palestinian flags by the thousands. Roads were blocked. Major highways were blocked. This has never happened before. This is unprecedented. So Israelis are, um, are really pissed. And they're pissed at the authorities for not punishing them, punishing these Arabs uh, more. And so they're demanding more arrests and they're demanding more convictions and more, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and that's that's unprecedented. And I think that's the thing that got to Israelis the most, you know, this sense that the Arabs are not are ungrateful. Wow. And that's where we hear depicted by the corporate media and the political establishment that that's the harmonious, you know, where the harmonious uh, 1948, right? The Israel is this democratic state where Christian Jews and Muslims all live in harmony and peace. And that's what we're told, what you're saying the Palestinian citizens of Israel were protesting in mass and actually in response saw state sanctioned violence unleashed by mobs within 48. I mean, talk about that aspect of this. So yesterday I spent the day in the Nakab, which is the entire southern 60 percent of the country. And, and, you know, they say the Negev in Hebrew, they call it the Negev. And um, I was talking, you know, they're about at least a quarter of a million, maybe a little bit more Palestinian citizens of Israel, Bedouin, who live in in, in that region, in the Nakab. And Beersheba is, or Beersheba is like, is the main city. Um, and um, I went to court with a few friends because there were hearings about extending the detention, extending the arrests of, of some of the activists. Um, but these are not, but a lot of these guys are not even activists because they were lynched. Um, and so this particular case, these particular guys that I went to, to court for yesterday, they were in court yesterday, there was a bunch, of, a bunch of students walking around and they were lynched by several hundred Israeli students on, just next to the campus. There's a campus in, um, uh, it's called the Ben Gurion University. Um, 
then the police came. So, of course, they sided with the uh, lynchers, with the Israelis, and beat them up more. And then they arrested these guys, and they spent, I don't know, depending on the particular case, anywhere between a week to indefinite times, I mean, time, you know, un undefined periods in detention. And then I met with some of the lawyers, the Palestinian lawyers who were defending them, and in some cases, if it's a if they if they are labeled a security case, they don't get to see a lawyer uh, for as long as the in the interrogation goes on. Uh, another friend of mine spent three days in this dungeon in the city of Ashkelon. It's um, it's an underground prison and uh, interrogation center for the Israeli secret police. You know, he came out all all beaten and bruised. Um, and what they were saying is, like in the past, they knew they had to watch out. You know, the police was going to were going to come and beat them up. They knew that. You know, altercations with the police always meant bad news. But now he says we have to be afraid of just walking down the street because just regular people in the street are are threatening us or beating us up. Um, and then they what they do another thing that they do is they they bring like busloads of settlers, like these right wing radical settlers from Hebron and places like that to instigate, to provoke even more. And, um, you know, and they're saying this is, this, is un this is unprecedented. I mean, Palestinian citizens of Israel have seen violence before, but it was always from the authorities. This is just from people in the street. This is like on campus, you know, it's the stuff that they've never seen. Um, and the thing is, they're just, they're, it's just funny. This one guy said, "You know, he started working out and practicing martial arts just in case." You know, it's it's this thing. It's a sense of okay, we got to be prepared for this because they're coming after us, and we can't win. You know, they've taken the land, they've taken the water in the Nakab, in the you know the Bedouin communities. They took away their camels. They, I mean, they they did everything. They took away their agriculture. They're not allowed to work in most in most fields, even though they're citizens of Israel. Um, and now they're coming out, and now these lynchings are going on, and then they get and then they get prosecuted, you know, and, and indictments come down. So not only are, do they do they get arrested after they get beaten up, but then they're also quite a few of them are being prosecuted for attacking the police and stuff like that, assaulting police officers. It's it's uh, you know, so they're saying it's just unprecedented. It's it's absolutely insane. And last question, Miko, about the the mood among Israelis now, which was what you're experiencing in the aftermath of these historic uprisings and, you know, the Gaza war where um, the Gaza resistance, as you said, had some pretty significant uh, victories and, um, you know, many... I think you could say that created a, even a bit of a deterrence for their act, uh, Israeli aggression in the West Bank because the Gaza resistance was responding to not what was happening to them, but what was happening to their uh, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But uh, but in terms of the mood among Israelis prior to all that, like I think, you know, the coverage of the, the lynch mobs and in 48 and in, you know, and Jerusalem and occupied territories like that got a lot of coverage. And I think people in the U.S. had a hard time wrapping their mind around the mentality that led to that. Like what? And, and you know, people seeing settlers cheering when Al-Aqsa was on fire, um, chanting death to Arabs and things like that. Like w explain the mood among Israelis that preceded all of this. These big mob, the mob violence that came out, the big marches through Sheikh Jarrah and other places. What what was going on in the minds of Israelis that that led to that happening? 
You know, as you're asking me this, as, as, you, as you're talking about all this, I also can't help thinking about all the other Israelis who are, who are just apathetic. Like, you know, just get up in the morning, go to work, take care of your kids. You know what I mean? There's also this terrible apathy that goes on. Um, look, what led to this, I mean, this is Cinderbox. I mean, this place is about to explode any minute. I mean, we're sitting here on a barrel of exposed explosives that's just waiting to blow up. And so it doesn't really take much to, you know, to light to light a match and throw it in there. And that's what happened. That's what's been happening every so often. Um, the last match was Netanyahu wanting to hold on to his seat and realizing, hey, nothing better for internal politics than to walk around, you know, surrounded by generals and wearing his, uh, you know, kind of casual clothes and like, you know, Mr. Mr. Uh, Security, Mr. You know, I'm here to defend the Jewish people from these crazy, violent Arabs kind of thing. And it worked. I mean, he's this is this is what his this is what it was about. It was about him wanting to hold on to his chair, him wanting to dismantle the um, opposition government that seemed like it might be forming without him. And uh, and and it succeeded. I mean, it's as soon as the as this uh, as as this began, as you know, this uprising began, um, and the shooting and bombing of Gaza began. Boom! He became Mr. Popularity. I mean, there's no question about that. So that's really what what brought what this what brought this up. So you know, you 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 ratchet up what's going on in Jerusalem. You you know, you send all these settlers and these settlers, you know, that, that go like into Shatirah, for example, into the homes of Palestinians that are being evicted. These are just a bunch of young guys who are paid to sit in those homes. It's not like these are families or anybody who has any connection to this country, to, you know, to that to that area or to these homes. These are just young settlers and they get paid a stipend to do this. So, I mean, so you ratchet that up and then you send the forces into the old city and you send, I mean, you saw the pictures, I'm sure, in Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, uh, I have friends who were in the mosque while while this was coming in and they were shooting, you know, rubber bullets at close range. You know, the place was filled with tear gas, stun grenades. Well, <laughs> this is uh, Netanyahu sitting watching this and smiling, waiting for, you know, to see his, his popularity uh, numbers come up. And they, and they did and they have. Yeah, and you know what we um we weren't surprised when we saw those marches chanting death to Arabs and you know the assaulting people in the streets and breaking the windows of Palestinian businesses and so forth cuz you know we were in you know we've been to West Jerusalem and you know Abby interviewed people on the street and got this you know firsthand account of the kind of mainstream of genocidal language and it's being kind of people feeling free to kind of openly speak in those terms, like saying the same things that these mobs were chanting that was shocking so many people in the U.S. Um, but I, and even that video, like people still were like, what where does this come from? Like, why? How can this be a mainstream opinion? And for you, someone who is very personally connected to this, like, how would you explain to someone who just sees that video you know, the video of the mob violence or of the video of Abby interviewing the um, Israelis in Jerusalem, you know, how would you explain to them why the mentality has be just become like that in such a mainstream way? Yeah, because this is totally obfuscated from Americans. You know, the corporate media never shows us what Israelis actually just freely talk about. So I think people were completely appalled by just those man on the street interviews that we did, which you very well know is... We're not cherry picked. This is a pretty mainstream viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I, I grew up hearing this stuff all, all over the place. So it, it didn't, it did, I mean, as horrifying as it is to listen to, it, it, it's not surprising. Um, but, you know, none of that reaches the Israeli media. So, in other words, all the stories of lynching that you hear, the violence against the Palestinians uh, is all portrayed um, in, in the opposite way. So it was the Arabs who instigated, it was the Arabs who attacked, it was it's the Arabs that are lynching Jews. Um, that's how it's being sold here on the in the in the, in the media. So you don't really hear much about what is happening to Palestinians on the street. You don't hear about the lynching. You don't hear about the attacks on citizens and all that. Um, so a lot of Israelis, um, you know, the ones who are just kind of day to day apathetic, you know, don't even know that this is happening, and they hear the news and they see that these Arabs are up, are are lynching Jews, and so they're quite happy to see them all be, you know, go to jail and be, get beaten and arrested and all that. Um, so the, the 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 media here is showing probably as much, if not less, than what what the media in the U.S. and other parts of the country are showing. It's really, um, and then and then you go out there and you talk to people, and you and you go back to this side, and everybody's like has no clue, or they don't care, or both. It's uh, it's it's really bizarre. I mean, like I said, I grew up hearing this stuff all the time. You know, line them all up, shoot them all, you know, throw them into gas chambers, whatever, whatever. You know, just just flatten Gaza and kill all these. You know, you you I mean, you hear that all the time. Um, it wasn't that polite for politicians to say that. It wasn't all that polite to hear it in the media, like in the you know the more respectable news programs. But it is now. Now it's fine. People just say it freely uh, everywhere. And I'm, it's a good thing that people are, you know, I hope people in the U.S. and other places are paying attention because, you know, the interviews that you did on the street, like in Jerusalem, I mean, that was perfectly natural, normal, and, you know, random people walking around the street about their business. They didn't know they were going to be interviewed that evening. Right. And they just right. said whatever they had on their minds. And they weren't even shy about it. And that's the thing. Nobody here is shy about saying these things. Well, that's what was so particularly harrowing, I think, for me, um, they were very happy to endorse not only ethnic cleansing, but just straight up genocide, like gleeful about it, uh, very blasé, knowing that they were talking to an American on camera. Yeah. I mean, good God, imagine what they're saying behind closed doors, but also like... Why? Like, why say those things unless you thought like an American audience was empathizing with your quote unquote situation, which is just like, you know, a settler colonial state that's like ethnically cleansing the indigenous population. Like, do you like what? I mean, I guess just speak a little bit more to that, like the fact that they were just so, so open to talking to someone on camera about that. And like, why? Why? Why do they feel like we would empathize with that? Well, there was the one girl he said that she, who, who said that well, we don't necessarily have to kill them all, but we are going to kick them out of their villages and take them. Um, so you know, she was yeah. being a little, she was like saying, well, you don't have to kill them all. Mm. Um, you know, the um, why they feel this this I think they realized Israelis realized, like I said, when I was growing up, you heard this all the time, but you'd never hear anybody say this publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about like maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, particularly when the Net- this Netanyahu era uh, began, people realized they don't have to pretend anymore. They can just tell the truth and get away with it. And they do, and they tell the truth and they get away with it. 
I mean, they just realize they don't have to pretend that it's fine. Nobody, nobody, there are no consequences, no negative consequences to telling, to saying how you feel about these, uh, about these Arabs. And, um, and here we are, we got, you know, I mean, the, the, the discourse is, is just completely open and racist and, um, you don't know what to say. I mean, you listen to these people talk, <laughs> and you just don't know what to say. I mean, how can you right. talk like this? You know, where did you right, yeah. where, where did you pick this up? But then you analyze the education system, then you analyze the media, mm-hmm. then you analyze analyze what people learn about the Holocaust and how you know these Arabs are like really the extension of the Nazis. And so if you don't kill them, they're gonna we're gonna end up looking at like these poor kids. You know, the pictures of children in uh, you know coming out of the camps after World War Two. You know, I mean, this is this is this is there's a plan to get these people. It's 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 you know, to to get these people to think like this and behave like this and be willing to drop bombs on uh, on, on on innocent people in Gaza. I mean, it's 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 this is all kind of engineered to to bring about this particular response so that they can do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially when you have government officials just saying the same things out in the open with no accountability. I mean, why not? You know, I mean, again, it's like the state sanctioned violence and rhetoric and behavior that, of course, the U.S. paints Netanyahu as this outlier. And we both know that that's not true. Um, Let's talk about the Palestinian spirit, because we saw not only this incredible uprising within 48 across all the political factions across all the territories then you also saw this historic strike yeah that took place um talk about that and like what your palestinian friends and colleagues are saying and what their spirits are like right now well people are pleased that the strike was was such a success um and you know, the responses are kind of mixed. I mean, so some Palestinians are like, "Okay, we're prepared for this. We're gonna we're gonna gear up for this." You know, and settlers come to our town to beat us up again, and we're, we're you know we're gonna be ready. Um, but um, I think most people are just scared. I mean, can you imagine not being able to go to work because you're scared you're gonna beat up, get beat up? Uh, you know, it's 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 confusing. It's horrifying, and and the thing is, nobody knows exactly what to do. I mean, where do you go from here? I mean, it's not like you can rely on the police. Uh, you can't rely on the authorities to protect you. You um, really have no recourse, and it's not like they can have an army or anything that's going to protect them or or fight for them. People have children that have to go to school. I mean, we heard these things about, you know, from happening in, in Hebron. We heard these things happening in cities where settlers have taken over places in the West Bank. Um, and so Palestinians were scared to send their kids. They needed, you know, somebody to escort their kids to school. This happens in Hebron every day, for example. But for this to happen, um, like in what they call mainstream or, you know, Israel proper, that's a, that's a real scary uh, reality here. And I'm, I'm, you know, nobody really quite knows how this is going to end or what to do about it. And you were telling us, Miko, before um, we started the, the podcast, but when we were talking earlier, you said that um, Palestinians are scared to go to work, like even Palestinians who like work in the hospital, which is like a, you know, pretty important job. You know, they're scared to go 
because they they fear violence. But this is actually something kind of new. Like they've been working in Israeli society with Israelis for their entire lives and something has changed. And so can you talk about that and like what what has changed? Why is there all of a sudden a, a new fear? Well, yeah, I mean, I know, you know, I, some Palestinians, you know, citizens of Israel work their whole life with Israelis there, you know, they speak Hebrew better than they speak English, I mean, Arabic even, you know what I mean? There's like, they're, they're totally, this is, this is their life, this is their society, they see themselves as part of the society. Um, because they, you know, their friends, the, 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 the people they work with, their neighbors are, are Israelis. And, um... And I don't think they realized that there was this underlying racism, that there was this underlying, you know, violence that was just waiting to erupt against them. And, um, I mean, you got to go to work, you know, you, you don't want to lose your job, you need to get paid at the end of the month, um, you got to pay your bills, what exactly are you going to do? You, how do you, how do you bridge this, um, and everybody, you know, some people go to work, some people still don't go to work. I mean, I know people who work in like major jobs, important jobs in Tel Aviv and other places, and they're not going to work. You know, women who wear, who are covered, who wear hijab are scared to go to work. You know, they're easily identified. Palestinians, uh, you know, they have an accent, they have, they have, you know, there's, they, they have a different accent when they speak Hebrew, even though their Hebrew is totally fluent. Um, but they're very easily identifiable as, as, you know, as Arabs. And that's a scary thing. So they try not to talk or not to stop along the way and get a cup of coffee somewhere, but to just go straight to work, do their thing, get back and go go back home. It's and the thing is, you know, I think what we know from history is that oppressed people, the worst thing they can do is uh, try to stay low, lay low. The, th- the worst thing they can do is try to kind of just compromise and appease their oppressors. Although sometimes there's no choice, but I mean, it's the worst thing you can do because things only, only get worse. You know, Jews tried to do that in Europe, like during the Nazi, you know, Nazi rule, the Nazi occupation, and things would get worse and worse and worse. And they'd say, okay, well, if we bow our heads and we're quiet and we comply, then we're going to be okay. It's not going to get any worse. And then they, they marched single file into the camps and into, and into, into their deaths, you know, in a very disciplined way. That's what it leads to. And what we're seeing now is that Israeli society is violent and racist and has no problem seeing these people who they worked side by side with sometimes for many, many years, you know, be killed, get lynched, um, and be persecuted by the authorities um, like they're just, you know, like they're nobody, like they're not even people. I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, I, you have to live through something like this, I think, to 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 get a sense of what it's like. I can't imagine what it would be like. It's terrible. Yeah, it, it does sound terrible, to say the least. Uh, explain more about these mass roundups that are happening, because you, I, I read 500 people. I don't know if it was just people who attended the protest who are now being punished or what. Is it organizers? Is it just like literally anyone that they deem might be affiliated with the organizing, like explain more about this mass roundup and what you think the intent behind it is. Well, what I heard yesterday was um, like, I was going down to meet a friend of mine and then we were going to go together and meet all these other people and so on. Um, and, and I didn't know if he was arrested or not, if he was, you know, 
but he, he, he so he doesn't he doesn't sleep at home because he knows the cops are after him. So he'll sleep at friends' houses, and then when he went to the court, he stayed behind because he knew if the cops saw him, they'd probably pick him up. Um, no, this is this is some people. Some of the arrests are just random young people. Some of the arrests are obviously known activists. Um, but we're, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, after they'd already arrested uh, close to fifteen hundred or two thousand last night or the night before last, or I should say the dawn of yesterday, they uh, they picked up another few hundred, and there was this mass. Uh, these were these mass raids throughout the entire country, you know, of, of you know, 1948 Palestine, throughout all the cities. And um, you go to the courthouse and you see all these families and lawyers and everybody waiting to see what's going to happen to their kids. And these are, a lot of these kids are just students who just happen to be there at the wrong place at the wrong time. Because the attacks, the assaults, the organized lynching, the organized uh, violence came from the Israelis. But I didn't see any Israelis um, in court being being uh, being detained, being arrested, and no indictments against any of the Israelis. Whereas indictments are coming down against these Palestinians. So you know they just have you know they just go and round up young people. It's um, that's 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 just how random that's just how random it is. And you know you pick up a bunch and some of these kids, a lot of these kids. This is one of the lawyers was telling me yesterday. A lot of these are like, you know, 14, 15 year olds. A lot of these oh are just really God. kids that they're picking up. Well, you take a 14, 15, and this is, these are stories that we're hearing from the West Bank for years. We know that they pick up these young kids, scare the life out of them, and get them to sign all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things that they did or didn't do, or point fingers um, and talk about what somebody else did or didn't do because they're scared to death. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, and so last night, actually, I attended this, you know, I attended this group, this meeting with a group of people and they, um, so some of the older, more experienced, um, you know, activists, the ones who've been in and out of jail were kind of giving advice to the others, you know, about their rights, about the right to an attorney, about their right to remain silent, you know, about not to being intimidated and on and on and on. Um, not to let the system intimidate you, not to let the cops intimidate you. But yeah, a lot of these are very, I, I remember hearing that you said a lot of these, a uh, large percentage of these uh, uh, last, uh, this last wave of, of arrests uh, have been kids, have been like just, you know, 14, 15 year old kids. Yeah, and, and you're talking about within 48, and so for people listening, this well, these is... These are citizens. These are citizens. These are citizens. Yeah, that's what's so crazy about this, because of course, I think, you know, a lot of people may have seen the video that just went viral today of like a 10-year-old boy being arrested and his sister's crying, and this is in the West Bank. And this kind of stuff happens all the time, you know, yeah. with, with tiny like children like that like that that is a, a child yeah um and he's just being rounded up by militarized police and just escorted away while his siblings are just screaming but yeah you're talking about israeli citizens you know as young as 14 15 being rounded up in a similar way uh without really legal rights you know um and that's really crazy miko and that i, I don't know how you know, different that is, or if this is just really trying to crack down to set fear in the heart of uh, organizing activism in general. You were just in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, this is something that obviously preceded everything that happened in Gaza, which of course Hamas claim, you know, 
issued that warning that they were going to retaliate with the al-Aqsa violence in Sheikh Jarrah. And what's sad about the situation now is it almost feels like, and I hope this isn't true, but it feels like the world stopped like paying as much attention once the bombs stopped in Gaza, when really everything that preceded the bombing and rockets is still going on. The daily humiliation, the demolitions, the the expulsions in Sheikh Jarrah. You were just there. Talk about what's happening there right now um, and how they've closed it off and just like everything about the situation. Well, yes, that's what you described is, is exactly what happens when the when Israel stops bombing and there's a ceasefire. Um, then everybody assumes that everything's fine. Everybody went back to normal. Everybody's lives are the same. But actually, that is not the case at all. The reality, the day to day terrorizing of Palestinian, of Palestinian, uh, well, citizens and not citizens, but Palestinians in general. Uh, goes on uninterrupted. That's why I don't like when people use the word status quo or, you know, or even ceasefire because Israel never stops. Israeli violence never stops. The Israeli settlement building never stops. The Israeli pushing of Palestinians and killing and all that never stops. They may have stopped a particular uh, campaign in Gaza, but everything else continues. So, you know, Shetra has a beautiful neighborhood. You know, it's historic. It's got all these incredibly important Palestinian uh, landmarks um, and uh, beautiful homes. And so this one particular street, I went to visit a couple who I knew for many, many years. Um, they're both professors. They, you know, they taught me Arabic at one point at the Al-Quds University. And... Um, it's like walking in, it's like you're, you're suddenly you're in Hebron. You got this, all the entrances to that particular street are closed off with these massive checkpoints. And uh, it's the Israeli border police, which is, you know, kind of a between, it's kind of a very, very heavily militarized um, police, uh, part of the police force. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll outsmart them. Maybe I'll find kind of a roundabout way to get into the street so I don't have to deal with them. Every alley that leads to that street is blocked off. So I go back, and I try to walk through, and they say, oh, where do you think you're going? I'm going, well, I'm going to visit so-and-so. They go, no, you can't. Are you a journalist? I'm going, no, I'm not a journalist. I'm just I'm going to visit a friend. No, you can't go. And then one guy asked the other guy, we let him go? Do we let him go? No, 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 screw it. He's not going in. So then I call my friend. Uh, he comes out. We try to talk to the soldiers again. Finally, one guy said, okay, you know, screw it. Let him in. Whatever. I mean, it's random. It's just whatever mood these these gorillas, you know, and it's not fair to call them gorillas. It's not fair to gorillas to call these guys gorillas. You know, these these just kind of strange creatures, you know, who just want to, you know, they're just violent and racist. Um, and finally, they let us in. So I go in, you know, this beautiful home, these typical beautiful Jerusalem homes. We've got a beautiful garden. Uh, the wife, Samira, was raised in that home. You know, she remembers every tree when it was, when they planted it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They raised their kids there. Uh, they're themselves, of course, refugees from other parts of, of Palestine. And um, they've got till August 1st to leave. Now, granted, the Israeli courts are now um, kind of dragging their feet on this, and the Israeli attorney general is kind of looking into this again, because I think all the 
all the news and uh, the fact that the world attention has been on this neighborhood has maybe scared them a little bit. So who knows what the courts are going to decide here and whether or not they're going to kind of delay and delay and postpone. It seems like they might. Uh, but across the street, you know, you got these settlers that have taken a home and next door there's another home where settlers took over and it's it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful neighborhood. It's a really nice part of Jerusalem. But they got to take it. They got to they got to get rid of these people because they want to get rid of these homes and they want to build high rises with apartments for uh, for Israeli Jews. And then there's another part that they want to you know they want to take down all these other homes and they want to build like an industrial an industrial park. And I mean they got plans, you know. They don't give a they don't care. They don't give a damn about the historical nature of this of this neighborhood, about the beauty of the home of the homes, about the fact that there are all these. Really important landmarks, historical Palestinian landmarks. I mean, Sheikh Jarrah itself, the mosque. You know, the Sheikh Jarrah was the, was was the physician of of Saladin. You know, who came to Palestine in the 12th or 13th century. You know, he's buried there. Nobody cares about that. They don't have any appreciation for the landscape or the heritage or the history. They want to just clear it up, build high rises, bring in as many Jews as possible. And move on. Forget that there was ever anybody else here um, before the Zionists came and took this place. It's heart. It's it's heartbreaking, you know, to see the people, but it's also heartbreaking to see this, you know, this country just go to hell like that. And they want to do the same thing in the old city, by the way. I mean, the old city of Jerusalem is a gem. It's it's an architectural, you know, one of a kind. It's gorgeous. It's got a history and a heritage and a culture and everything besides the fact that all these People have been living there and working there for centuries. They don't care. They want to get rid of the Arabs. They want to put in Jews, and just they want to uh, move on with this with this uh, kind of de-Arabizing of the country. And so Sheikh Jarrah is like locked down only for Jews and residents who already live there. And you said the settlers are just you know they're moving in. Um, I'm assuming there's no legal recourse that the Palestinian residents with actual like ancestral roots in these homes have uh, similarly to the West Bank, right? I mean, otherwise they would have. Well, they do. They uh, they, they go to court, but the court, but all, you know, sure, I mean, this yeah. whole thing, this whole eviction started with some fake documents right. that these settler uh, NGOs or not, you know, not for profits have, you know, have, 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 um, you know, brought forward to the courts. And so, even though there's absolutely no proof, there's absolute, absolute, there's absolute evidence that these documents are not real. Uh, the court came down on the side of the settlers, and then each particular case, you know, the homes they do have lawyers, and it did go to court, but the courts are coming down on the side of the settlers all the time. So officially, they do have some legal recourse, but the but the, but the justice system doesn't work here for Palestinians, only for Israelis. So there's nothing they can do. There's nowhere they can go. And, you know, there's nowhere to go. And I was talking to them, you know, Samira and Adil, and they were saying every every reporter, you know, they've been interviewed by everybody, asked them the same question. So where are you going to go? And she goes, I don't know. Where do you go? Where do you go when you get kicked out of your home? Just like that, to the streets. What do you do? You know, nobody, who knows what, what you're going to do? You don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, and, you know, when this, when all this started, it was, surprising for us because when the Sheikh Jarrah stuff started um, and that first, you know, Lahavab march 
through the neighborhood and all that, you know, it got some U.S. press and it became a little bit of a a PR disaster for Israel. Um, There is that viral video of that Israeli settler like from Long Island, like nonchalantly, like stealing the Palestinian home, um, being like, if I'm not going to steal it, someone else is going to steal it, you know, who became famous, um, who now turns out he was like the super Trump guy, actually. It has all these weird photos of him, like in full body Trump outfits and like it painted on his forehead and stuff. But that's a uh, that's an aside. Um So it became this PR disaster. And then, of course, the raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque became another like international PR disaster for Israel. Um, And, you know, the media was actually being, you know, somewhat critical and it was surprising for us. And then the rocket started. And then I I imagine the Israeli state was like, oh, this is good. This shifts the focus away from all the bad press we're getting to now what our wheelhouse is. This is an issue of self-defense where they're trying to kill us and we're just defending ourselves. And then they wanted the focus to be all on the war against this terrorist group. But then even the war on Gaza became a PR disaster in in a way that it, it really hadn't in the past, even during the 2014 war, which was, you know, so so destructive and and brutal um there was you know even the front page of the new york times today was a uh, was about palestinian suffering under occupation i mean there was a real you know breakthrough in the press even when it was this situation of oh well this is obviously you can't fire rockets at civilians and israel has to do something there was a real i think breakthrough for U.S. consciousness, the media, things happened in American politics that we haven't really seen before. Um, so my question is, do you do you have the same sense that something different and major has shifted? Um, and what do you think Israel's response to this is going to be? Because they have their plan and their trajectory. And so much of that rests on public opinion in the U.S. and the ability of it to maintain U.S. support. Um but they obviously have this balance of they can't go too far and outrage the American public to where the U.S. has to withdraw support, but they're still dedicated to this mission of conquest. And so what do you what's your sense of the moment we're in now and what Israel is going to do to navigate it? Well, I think they're terrified, quite honestly. I mean, I think they are terrified because um, they can't do anything right. And for the first time in, I don't know, the history of the world, the U.S. Congress is actually discussing um stopping aid you know that 700 million dollars or so you know that that america wanted to send there's there are people talking about not doing that that's unprecedented um and the only reason that's happening is because we've seen all these tens of thousands of people marching in cities all over the u.s and actually all over the world in against israel and in support of palestinian rights so you know they do what they do best which is they hunker down, they push their spokespeople forward, they give them more talking points, they, you know, they redo the talking points. Um, that's what they do best and that's what works. And then they, you know, they also come back stronger with how Palestinians are racists and killers and and uh, terrorists and stuff like that. I mean, this friend of mine yesterday, one of my, one of the, my friends yesterday, um, I asked him what he was charged with when he was arrested. Uh, and one of the charges was terrorist activity and 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 belonging to a terrorist organization. He doesn't belong to anything. He, he's kind of like me. He doesn't like organizations and he doesn't like anybody. So he doesn't belong to anything. So it was a little bit funny that they charged him with that. But it's 
you know, that's just how extreme it gets. So they can, this is like this blanket accusation against Arab Palestinians in general. They are terrorists. They belong to terrorist organizations. We might not know what these organizations are. They might not even exist, but hey, these guys are terrorists. Um, and it works. That's the crazy thing about this. You know, I remember in 2008, I was thinking, you know, when, when the, you know, with this round of every couple of years bombing the hell out of Gaza started, I thought, how, how did they get away with this bombing people in Gaza? Uh, you know, people, there's never been a tank. Palestinians have never had a tank or an army or anything, right? And they get away by saying that it's self-defense. And you go, how is, is, how is it that, that people are so gullible and stupid that they're actually buying this? And the, everybody's buying it. I mean, the media, the politicians. What? How do they, it's like a magic trick. I don't know how the, the Israeli Hasbara does it. But they managed to sell this crap to people and everybody's eating it like it's, um, I don't know, uh, I, I can't explain it. But that's what they do because they know it works. And so they push and push and push their own stuff. But I think what they're seeing is that it's not working as well because obviously they see all these mass protests around the world, everywhere around the world. And uh, like I said, they see people in Congress uh, discussing whether or not they should send money to Israel. Um, the name Sheikh Jarrah came up a bunch of times in Congress and in the Senate. This is unprecedented. So I think they're scared. I, th I really think they're scared. I mean, they send Naftali Bennett and all these guys to go out there and say that everybody's anti-Semitic. But I don't know that it's that it's catching on as good as well as it did. In many ways, I think this might be the beginning of something that we're all hoping to see, which is, you know, the kind of the collapse of the Zionist regime. Well, we we share that optimism, but it is clear that what you just mentioned was actually my next question, because it, that actually is catching on. I mean, it's very clear that since the ceasefire in the U.S. anyway, that all, all of the old tricks didn't work anymore. Um, and so now the main narrative over the past couple of days in the U.S. media overwhelmingly and among Congress as well is that anti-Semitism is now surging in the United States and anti-Semitic attacks are surging in the United States. And sometimes it's directly blaming Palestine solidarity activism. Sometimes it's just, it's not making a direct connection, but it's insinuating it to say, well, you have to understand where Jews are coming from and supporting Israel because they are just being attacked everywhere, even in America. And there's just all of these, you know, anecdotal stories of you can't wear a yarmulke in New York City anymore. And this yeah. was once a, a safe yeah. place for Jews and all this stuff. Um, and, and so it has caught hold. And now all of these, everyone who has spoken out for Palestine must now come out and denounce anti-Semitism because, which of course, there's nothing wrong with denouncing anti-Semitism. It's good to do. But there's an obvious um, propaganda shift to let's make the focus this fact that there is a rise of anti-Semitic attacks and that is because of criticism of Israel and sympathy with the Palestinians. You know, they're not saying that has anything to do with like Trumpism or the rise of the MAGA movement, you know, th the far right white supremacy, things that actually did contribute to the rise of anti-Semitism. But now it's conflating it with if you criticize Israel, you are contributing to anti-Semitic attacks. Or if you show solidarity with Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle, you are contributing to anti-Semitism and a rise in anti-Semitic attacks. What is your actually? 
Yeah, and I just wanted to add that even Bernie, you know, was confronted on Meet the Press or something, and he said, yeah, we need to tone down the rhetoric. Oh, God, I um, saw that. Which is just so disappointing because it was such an incredible moment to see the squad in Congress unabashedly say Israel's an apartheid state, apartheid states are not democracies. And then so to denounce, and I'm not actually sure if Bernie himself or like his uh, his uh, chief of staff or something did this, but he basically just said like that's loaded rhetoric. And yeah, I mean, just it's just this huge pressure campaign now to have everyone take a stand. And now it's just this false equivalency and just bizarre obfuscation of like what just happened. Like a massive amount of war crimes were just committed on camera. And like now we're just talking about this entirely other thing. Yeah, tone down the rhetoric. It's always the problem is always the rhetoric. You know, it's always the problem is always, you know, don't say apartheid. You know, don't say ethnic cleansing as though that's the problem. It's not the the saying of it is the problem. It's the doing it that's the problem. You know, why tone down the rhetoric? Why not tone down the racism and the violence against Palestinians? I don't know where he gets, where, where, how he gets off saying something like this. You know, tone down the rhetoric. The rhetoric is the problem. You know, and here there was this one case where I guess there was, I think it was in New York. There were a couple of Israelis that stood there with Israeli flags in the face of Palestinian, a pro-Palestinian march. And there was an altercation and there was a fight that ensued and they interviewed these two Israelis and they just glorified them about what brave soldiers they were when they were back here and they were soldiers and how they used Krav Maga and how effective they were (laughs) in, you know, in fighting off the crowds and what heroes and how proud we are of them and you know what a wonderful thing they did and on and on ad nauseum on and on these two guys were like you know and one of them's dad is a somebody i don't know what he invented some martial arts i don't know all that kind of stuff and you go for god's sake shut up you know these guys were uh, it, it was a provocation they stood there with an israeli flag which is like I don't know any other fascist racist symbol that, that that you could hold in front of people you know it's um that's how that's how this is portrayed and uh, of course you know anti-semitism 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 they're always finding this uh they're always pushing this this forward and equating solidarity with Palestinians with anti-semitism it's all they got I mean this is all they've got and it's running thin and I think they're running low on this and um I don't know. I I don't see them being able to to pursue this line of reasoning much, you know, very much longer. You don't. That's well, that's um, because but it also seems like, you know, even that provocation and there was others. I mean, there was a something similar happened here in L.A. where uh, people were provoking people who were at the march and there was a fight and then it got painted as a hate crime. It's being investigated as a hate crime here. Um, but it, it obviously seemed deliberate that the to shift the narrative to this thing about anti-Semitism on the rise to distract from the fact that finally people are acknowledging the true extent of, you know, Israeli crimes against humanity. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's the hate crime is holding up the Israeli flag. That should be considered a hate crime. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really it. I mean, can you imagine, uh, I don't know, a, a Jewish people walking and I don't know, Mem- in memory of God knows what, the Holocaust or something, and people standing there with all kinds of Nazi and neo-fascist uh, symbols. 
if they got beat up, people would, would, would be cheering that on. I mean, I think people need to start realizing that Zionism and anti-Semitism and white supremacy and all other forms of, you know, racism, that's all the same. Fighting all of these, fighting Zionism is like fighting anti-Semitism, it's like fighting white supremacy. You know, those are on, all these people are on that side and the rest of us are on this side. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to flip it and bring Zionism to the side of, of tolerance and, 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 and all that. And, and that's really their, their fight. They're, they want to show Zionism as something that's really good. And if you fight it, then, you're, then you, must hate, you, you must hate Jews and you must be a racist. And we've got to keep pushing that back to the other column saying, no, 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 Zionism is racism. Zionism is exactly like anti-Semitism. Holding up the Israeli flag is uh, holding up uh, hate symbols. It is a hate crime to hold up a an Israeli flag like that. You know, that's, that's, that's really the battle that we're in, to push that and to push that message forward so that Bernie can't stand up and says, no, we got to tone down the rhetoric. You're not going to tone down the rhetoric when you're talking about opposing racism and supremacy. That's not what we need to be doing. The, we, we, need to, we need to ratchet up the, 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 the rhetoric. We need to do more of this. We need, to, we need to denounce Israel and denounce Zionism and denounce the Israeli flag even more. People need to get this through their thick skulls that Zion, opposing Israel is the right thing to do. It's like opposing any fascist, racist, supremacist regime. That's what we need to do. And that's the struggle to push this forward, push this forward, so the politicians understand this is no longer acceptable. Supporting Israel is no longer acceptable. There should be no tolerance for Zionism or Zionist symbols anywhere. You know, that I think is our main, is really our main struggle in doing what we do is pushing that idea forward. Right. And there's, in addition to this, shifting the focus to anti-Semitic attacks and somehow being uh, caused by Palestine solidarity, there, you know, there's also the attempt to do what you're saying is to bring Zionism into like a, a, the progressive world. And, and, uh, and you see it, especially on social media, where, you know, like these Hasbro type accounts are saying, well, you know, Jews are an oppressed people. And if you oppose Israel, then you're against Jewish self-determination. Or um, if you're if you're gay in the U.S. and you support Palestine, well, if you went to Palestine, they would hate you for being gay, but you'd be welcomed in Israel. And like there's this there's this obvious attempt to, to couch Zionism in a actual progressive and liberal and, and you know, social justice space. But um, um, you know, I don't feel that it's really working, but it's obvious that that's kind of part of the uh, the attempt of the propaganda also. Yeah, even though gay marriage isn't even legal in Israel, which is funny. Yeah, but exactly. That's the struggle. They're, got, they're trying to push Zionism onto our side of the argument. And we got to make sure that we throw it right back on the other side and say, excuse me, no, you're not getting away with this bullshit. You're absolutely not getting away with this bullshit. Zionism is not progressive. Jewish people may have been, like many other minorities, sadly enough, a persecuted minority, um, and yes, certainly there's anti-Semitism. Just like some people are racist against, you know, black people. Some people are racist against Asian people. Some people are racist because they're racist. You know, mm. it's it's part of this thing called racism, which exists. That mm. has nothing to do with supporting a fascist regime that has been engaged in ethnic cleansing, in apartheid, and in genocide, which are well-defined crimes. You know, we're not talking about some regime that kills, a, you know, some poor bastard from time to time. We're talking about systemic racism. We're talking about systemic 
ethnic cleansing and we're talking about systemic genocide. That's what we're talking about here. This has nothing to do with, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Jews. The fact that these criminals happen to be Jewish or were born to Jewish mothers has, that doesn't mean that this is against Jews. They happen to be Jews. Well, there are Jewish criminals too in the world. What are you going to do? It's not anti-Semitic to put other Jewish criminals in jail, right? And so, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is yeah, otherwise we'd have to open the jails and release all the Jews because that's anti-Semitic because Jews have a right because they suffered the Holocaust. You know, that's, a, that's the logic. That's where this is going, you know. And so it's time. I, I think yeah, I think this is our toughest or most important uh, objective right now is to make sure that people understand that Zionism is in the same column as all other forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. If you oppose anti-Semitism, you should oppose racism. You oppose all forms of racism. You should oppose Zionism as well. It's the exact same thing. I really like the way that you just articulated that. And let's wrap it up here just final thoughts from you, and I just wanted to leave you with this. I mean, I just saw reports that there were several thousand people protesting within 48, thousands of Israelis in the street. I'm not sure if it was against the massacre in Gaza, if it's against Netanyahu. I mean, touch on that and then explain why you staunchly advocate BDS as an Israeli, as someone who grew up there, as someone who continues to go back many, many times. Why is BDS what you feel like is the only solution to come out of Israeli society, or rather there is no hope from within Israeli society and BDS needs to be mounted from the outside. And then also just comment on this unsustainability of like this military strategy that Israel has where, you know, Hamas did make significant gains. The Palestinians did mobilize in this unprecedented way. They are scared it is an untenable situation in the eyes of the international community, especially when they rely and depend on support and swaying public opinion. Committing war crimes like this and carpet bombing and, you know, targeting civilians over and over again while being scared to actually go and confront people face to face. That it just seems like an unsustainable thing, especially when Hamas is getting, uh, you know, increasing their military capabilities. So I guess just close all that up. I know I just threw a lot at you, but uh, take it away. Well, I'll start, I'll start with the last part. I think uh, that's the part that insults Israelis the most. Uh, when you tell them that their army is not brave, that their army is not of any high quality, that the, that the human aspect of the Israeli army is made of cowards who would never, ever be able to stand uh, and fight in front of a well-disciplined, organized, and motivated military force. I think that's why they're never going to start a war against Iran. Um, that's why they're not going to invade. Have a, we're not going to see a ground invasion into Lebanon again, you know, because they know that they, soldier to soldier, they don't stand a chance. I mean, all these really generals, you see them walking around all decorated and. <laughs> they all they did their entire career was shoot and fight a people that have never had a military force. So when you've got the most sophisticated, best equipped army or one of the best equipped armies on earth, and your soldiers are well fed and well dressed and you know well rested, what's yeah, they, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. You put these guys in F F 18s or whatever the hell these warplanes are called. And you drop one-ton bombs against a civilian population that has no defenses. Okay, what's the big deal? Any monkey can do that. So these generals, that's what it is. The entire Israeli military is based on that. 
Um, and so I think they're terrified and they know that they're going to lose. And, um, that's why they need more and more and more of these, you know, high tech bombs and, and, and planes and things. Cause that's all they got, you know? Um, and you know, there's nothing more insulting to them to hear that they're just a bunch of cowards that couldn't possibly face the Iranians or Hezbollah or the Palestinians because the Palestinians fight heroically. These people fight heroically, um, and they're well motivated and, and that's really what it's about. Israeli soldiers are not motivated. They're, you know, they're, they're, anyway, I won't say any more about that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to places that, you know. Um, and then um, uh, I forgot what was the other part? BDS and just, oh, so you know, BDS. the fact that there so, were, well, because okay, I so, saw people saying to me that there were thousands of people protesting in the yeah, street. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, like, this you know thing, there's this thing called coexistence, which, you know, kind of this left Zionist really, really love. All this coexistence, you know, Jews and Arabs refuse to be enemies and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the time for coexistence, I mean, coexistence is great. Don't get me wrong. It's the best thing on earth. The problem is when the coexistence is between one side who's privileged, who's got all the rights and all the privileges and all the resources, and by the way, goes to the serves in the military and their kids serve in the military, and the other side uh, has no access to water or electricity or medical care and lives in refugee camps, and by the way, is targeted by the soldiers, by these guys on the other side when they are in uniform, that's not coexistence. That's not coexistence. That is crap. What you need is resistance, a dedicated, well-planned, um, well-thought-out resistance to bring down this regime, to bring down the racism, to bring down apartheid. Then we work on coexistence. There are ways to do that. I mean, South Africa, I think, laid, you know, some great, great, you know, some great ideas on how you build some coexistence from, you know, two warring sides or one side that's been privileged and one side that was suffering from, from oppression. Uh, and we can talk about that when we get to that point. The most important thing is to end this regime, to end the oppression, to take away the, the systemic racism and violence against Palestinians. You know, yesterday, towards the end of the day, we drove to this little, this, you know, in, in the Nekab, there are about 150,000 people or so who live in what Israel calls unrecognized villages. So we drove to see, because some of the people that were released, they're actually, they were released after, uh, from jail yesterday, live in one of these. And you drive off the main road, and you know, Israel's got great roads. So you drive off the main road because these unrecognized villages don't have roads. And you drive on this rocky, rocky road, um, dirt road for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably like, I don't know, five, seven, ten miles. And you think, if there was an emergency, an ambulance is not going to do this. And you know that ambulances, you know, if there's an emergency, these people are going to die. If a woman's in labor, she's either going to have the baby like on the road or the baby and the mother are going to die. Now, these are Israeli citizens. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who live like this. No water, no electricity, no road, no infrastructure, no nothing. There are no Israelis who live like that. Uh, if these people build a home on land that's been their ancestral land for God knows how long, since time immemorial, if they build a home, it's going to be demolished. 
you never hear of Israeli homes being demolished, by the way. And it's not like Israelis are all saints and never build without a permit. Israelis build without a permit all the time. They make an addition, they build a balcony, they build a little house, you know, an extension for their kids, whatever, whatever. Then, you know, the inspectors come, you get a fine, you go to court, the drag's on for years. You never see the road closed and the army coming in to demolish an Israeli home. So this whole coexistence nonsense is a bunch of crap. There is no, there cannot be coexistence in a reality where you've got one side privileged and one side that's not, that's oppressed and has no access to water and electricity. And this is not some freaking outpost in the middle of nowhere. We're talking about just a few miles from Israeli cities where you've got everything. So this racism has got to go. Now, the only way to bring it down is to bring it down. You know, they just had this ridiculous musical competition called the Eurovision Song Contest. And Israel, of course, likes to think of itself as part of Europe. So they participate and they won a bunch of times. And just as the bombs are falling, I'm looking and it's on TV and this Israeli band is singing in this European song contest. And you go, what? Are you guys out of your fucking minds? <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you letting this country be represented in this? And it's like, oh, yeah, they're singing and dancing. And they've got this, of course, this, you know, you know, African Israeli girl, whatever, whatever. She's the big star. This is insane. Israelis need to know that with an Israeli passport, you cannot land in any airport. The Israeli diplomats are sent home from every capital around the world. That no Israeli artist, no Israeli uh, scientist, no Israeli anything can go anywhere, period. Or an Israeli athlete can participate in anything, period. That's how part of that. I remember if you had a South African passport, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. Wow. If you had some kind of a sporting event and you invited South African team, you would be penalized. Whoa. Your organization would be penalized if you invited a South African team, if you allowed a South African team to come. You know, this is how it needs to be, and that's how you bring it down. And it's not going to kill anyone, it's not violent, and it's not, God forbid, anti Semitic or anything like that. It's about bringing down this nasty regime so that people can coexist. Because, in some strange way, there is some coexistence here because geographically, Israeli and Palestinian communities are very, very close. And, you know, in some cases, Palestinians like living in the middle of nowhere like that. And that's fine, too. But, I mean, you've got to get rid of that. And BDS is the way to do this. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I thought it was more about isolating Israel. But that is so interesting to know that it was also about isolating Israelis from the international community in terms yeah. of, like, events and, and academia and stuff like that. Uh, that is exactly what we need to do. Miko, you have been at the forefront of the struggle for so long. You've inspired the hell out of me and so many others. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Empire Files podcast. Everyone check out Miko Piled's work. Donate to your Patreon. Miko, quick plug your work. Tell people how they can find you and what you have coming up next. Uh, well, MikoPellet.com has everything, and the Patreon.com slash MikoPellet has got the Patreon stuff. We've got great interviews there, great interviews coming up. Uh, we have an interview with one of the finest, finest uh, journalists on Earth today. Her name is Abby Martin. You may have heard of her. <laughs> um, really fantastic, fantastic stuff. Uh, a lot of Palestinians, actors, writers, yeah. um, fighters, you name it. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, 
follow me on I'm on social media everywhere so TikTok and all everything Instagram whatever so awesome. it's, yeah, it's all kick. it's it's Love all it. it's all there and uh congratulations to you on the lawsuit yes and yes. for winning that um it's awesome and great chatting with you guys thanks a lot for calling thank you so much onward and upward and Absolutely. keep fighting and stay stay safe out there Miko it's a dangerous society so so <laughs> watch your back <laughs> alright we look forward to hearing more from you when you are done with your trip sounds good thanks 